Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. It's, it's always so hard for us to see people who have this unbelievable amount of talent waste it. They have all these gifts, all these talents, all these abilities, and for some reason, they don't see it or they throw it away, or for whatever reason, potential is completely gone. Let me say some names from history to see if you can relate to this. Jimi Hendrix, arguably one of the greatest guitarists of all time, revolutionizes a sound, starts to create something during a time when America and the world was desperate for music, was desperate for something in the midst of sociological pain and uprises this amazing star who died way too soon. For my generation, Chris Farley, uh, if you know who Chris Farley is, you should get to know him. And uh, he was a big man who would crash through tables and make everybody laugh and talk about he's a man who lives in a van down by the river. And he put all these movies out in the 90s that just made us laugh and giggle, but his life, again, taken too soon. Heath Ledger, arguably one of the greatest actors of all time. Uh, He portrayed uh, characters in ways that weren't seen before, that were so in-depth, people started to think he was losing his mind as he would portray these characters, but he, again, taken too soon. It's so hard to watch. Honestly, we see potential and We see what could have been, right? What if Jimi Hendrix was still alive now? What would have happened to music if that potential got to carry on? And for you, perhaps there's somebody in your life that you saw who had great potential that threw it away. In high school, maybe there was that athlete. Like if you had one ounce of that athlete's abilities, but they didn't care and they didn't really try and practice and they just kind of meh their way through everything and threw away unbelievable potential, Maybe it was a student. Like you had, you're that person who had to study all the time, and you worked so hard to get the A on the test, but then you had your friend who didn't study and got A's, and you wanted to throat punch him all the time? Because like you don't even work, and you get A's, but he didn't even try. He got B's. He's like, oh, I don't really care, and threw away potential. Throwing away greatness is really hard to watch. It's hard to watch because we see wasted abilities. And today we're going to go through a concept that's going to be a little bit different perhaps for you. I want you to explore the concept of this. Sin in your life is exactly the same as wasting potential. Sin in your life is exactly the same as throwing away your potential. Think about it. Sin in our lives looks great on the outside and it captivates us and pulls us into a story of believing this. Whatever sin that I'm in right now is better than reality. And so what it does is it maims us, it takes the legs out from us, it starts to kill and destroy us, and then we become a breeding ground of more sin and destruction in the world. Think about how much potential is in your life. Think about this for a second. We're not going to have you raise hands or say anything, but think. How much potential was wasted in your life because sin came in? And when I was putting this together, I sat and thought about it for a second. I'm like, wow, there's there's quite a bit. I chose this over that. I chose sin 
over holiness. I chose my way over God's way, and boy, does it mess us up. But we don't talk about it that way often. So today, we're going to dig into a passage of a villain inside of scriptures who did exactly that, that there was potential there. In fact, this was one of the heroes, but because he decided to go the opposite direction, actually caused more death and destruction than we can even really imagine. So inside of the Bible, we're going to be in Joshua today. If you have your Bibles or Bible apps, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. But before we get there, I want to give you a backstory of what's been happening in our story so it makes sense as we go into this account. Back in Joshua chapter 6, actually before that, we'll go even further back, we'll go back. Joshua is the leader of the Israelite army, and he is now the leader of the army because before that, in the book of Exodus, Moses leads them out of captivity from Egypt. Uh, All of Israel rebels. So as Israel rebels, they are now wandering because of their disobedience instead of going to their promised land. God has a land set up or a nation set up for the people of Israel to have their own place to live. And so if they had obeyed, God would have taken them right there, but they didn't. So they're now wandering for 40 years. Uh, God says this decree, because you've sinned against me, none of your generation is going to enter into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. These are two spies who are seen to be righteous because they believed in God. The other people didn't believe in God. They said, God's not going to get us into this thing. God's going to get us all killed. A lot of moaning, a lot of griping. Maybe you can relate. So Israel's now on the move. Over this time of 40 years, Joshua's rising as a military leader. He's watching and following Moses. And so when it comes time to the promised land, it is true as God had said, the only people that were still there to enter the promised land were Joshua and Caleb, and then all the kids of the descendants, everyone else had died off over this time. So Joshua is really the only senior there. He's got kind of the job by default, if you will, but also he's a strong, powerful leader. He's not only a military leader in terms of his tactics, he is a military leader because he trusts God. He was there when they didn't get in, and he said, I trust God to get us in. And now he's on the edge of this land and say, the only way we're going to get this land is if we trust God. That was Joshua's strongest point. He trusted God no matter what. So Joshua now enters into this. We move into Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6 sees Israel taking this amazing victory over the city called Jericho. Jericho is a monstrous building with a city with monstrous walls. They could not break into this place. And God tells Joshua and the army to do something very unique. I don't want you to attack it. What I want you to do is circle around it for six days blowing your trumpets. Super great military tactic there, right? We want you to go around this thing. I want you to blow your trumpets every day, go around there. And so they would do this. For six days, they're blowing the trumpets, and they're going around outside the building. On the seventh day, I want you to do this. I want you to go around the outside of it. I want you to go, and as you blow your trumpets, I want you with a ruckus roar, start to cheer and yell. And they do this, and all of the walls of this city fall to the ground. So the walls fall down, and then they're like, let's go! And so they didn't have to worry about the walls. They go, and they plunder, and they destroy everything inside of Jericho. Now, as they enter to Jericho... And all of the armies, God had said something very direct to the nation of Israel. He says, here's another thing I'm telling you. If you don't get this, pick this up in the Bible yet, God says to do stuff, then the people don't do it, and then there's consequences. And God tells you to do things, and then you don't do it, and there's consequences. You're going to see kind of a similar theme from Joshua to your life. So God says this, I want you to go in, I want you to take everything, 
that is of precious gold, silver, bronze, iron. You take that and that goes to the Lord's treasury. Everything else burned to the ground. Do not take anything for yourselves. Anything that was offered as former gods, idols, though I don't want anything is to be burned and destroyed because I'm holy and I do not want this for my people. So Joshua now goes in. They take all of this land. They blow everything up in my terminology. They get in there. They don't take anything. They come back. Everything is gravy. Now we're going to move into Joshua chapter 7. They go into another battle, which is like, man, God's winning all the time for us because that's the unique story of the Israelites. It's not Joshua winning. It's God winning. The only reason that they're winning is because God is giving them victories. Joshua chapter 7, we see a little bit of a turn in the story. Joshua 7, we're at verse 3 to 5. And when they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, so not to weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Joshua has this opportunity to take a very simple, small, little city. And they're like, Joshua, there's like nobody there. We just defeated Jericho. We're cool. Don't waste everybody's time. Two or 3,000 is overkill. Just send them. They'll take care of it. They'll come back. The rest of the guys can eat, sleep, and relax. No problem. Joshua says, all right, sounds good to me. So he sends the army in. The army goes in, and this little nobody group of people destroyed them. In fact, not only did they rout them, 36 Israelites die. Now, it doesn't seem like a huge number of 3,000, but there's death count now of Israel. And it wasn't just the death count that was interesting. It was the fact that they took off after them. They were chasing Israel and all these men, and so just running and screaming in the opposite direction, and they're chasing them looking like absolute fools. Here's this army that everybody's talking about. Right? All these cities, hey, there's this army, and they're the Israelites, and like, their God is giving them all these victories, and this guy named Joshua, and he's like super hardcore beast mode, and like, they come in, and they just wipe everybody out. So all these cities are talking about this, right? If someone said, hey, we're going to invade Washington County, and we're going to wipe out everybody, everything, we're going to destroy all of their dogs and their cute little kitties, and we're going to burn their houses to the ground and burn their possessions, we would be talking about it a little bit right now. So these cities are talking about this. And so here comes Israelites into this. This will be an easy route for us to be able to get into because God has called them to take this land. So he comes in and this little nobody thwarts them. And so they run back and like, what just happened? This now took the fear of the people into the fear of Israel. And if you know the story of the Israelites back in Exodus, they're constantly afraid and not believing God's going to do things. So they're not used to losing, right? They're not used to losing. Kind of how I felt at game six with the Bucks the other night. I'm not used to us seeing us lose that game, right? And I melted like water when I'm like, we're at game seven. But in reality, this group of people are so afraid and terrified, they have lost their will to fight. They're terrified. We're not going to win. What's going to happen, because Israel has been watching what's been happening, those 
cities are going to turn against us and they're going to wipe us off the planet. It'll be a complete genocide. There will no longer be a nation of Israel. We are toast. They are so afraid. So Joshua does what we would all do as a good leader who loves God, is you start asking God what just happened. So Joshua 7, verses 6 to 9. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan and deliver us to the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your, service, your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe your name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Joshua is a leader who is broken and completely confused. Why did you bring us here to get smoked? We, we, we could have stayed over here. We're cool. We're not that big of people. We could stay on this side, and those guys can have that side. But I love this. Uh, pardon your servant, Lord. He has great manners, right? Pardon your servant, Lord. I've got a question for you. What can I say now? What do you want me to say now that we have been routed by our enemies? Have you ever been in a situation like that as a parent or a leader or as a friend when someone's going through something super hard and they look at you and they say, you tell me that God loves me, why would God allow this to happen? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's a hard question. I don't have an answer for you for that. All I know is that I trust that God's got a good plan. I don't, I don't have an answer for you. And if you've been in that place, you can understand Joshua. He says, what am I supposed to say that right now we're about to be completely wiped off the face of the earth? We are going to get completely wiped out. What do you want me to say, God? And you can hear this brokenness. Why did you bring us out here to get destroyed? We are doing everything you told us to do. We went in. We didn't take the stuff. We took the stuff in the treasury. And so you can imagine as just a leader, him processing all of this at the same time. Why are we losing? There's something wrong in the story. So we're going to read on into verses uh, 10 through 12, where we see that there's a loss of God. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Isn't that an interesting question? Because Joshua's there is weeping and mourning, and the dust on their head is mourning, and they're crying out to God. He's like, stand up, Joshua. What's going on, man? Like, so, so kind of like casual after they just lost this war, but this is our God, man. He just makes it clear. Stand up. What are you doing? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them on their own, with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. I'm going to repeat that verse to you one more time because we can go by a little quickly. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. God made a very clear covenant with the people of Israel not to take things and to put them into their midst. God is smarter than we are. There's a reason why he didn't do that. And if you know the history of Israel, when we go back into, again, Exodus, 
As soon as they get out of Egypt and Moses goes up on the mountain, the first thing they do when there's signs of trouble and they're struggling and they, who knows what they're going through, some PTSD, we don't know, they go right away and they start making images of gods that they worshipped in Egypt. They went back to their old ways of doing things. And now on this side of the story, we can see that God is saying, you are people set apart. You're not to take the culture in here with you. You're supposed to be your own culture. So listen to me, trust me. When you start to bring cultures together, it will lead towards destruction. And I've told you this, you broke the covenant with me. Therefore, I'm not hanging out with you until you fix the problem. Now, I'm going to create a little bit of tension this morning because we live in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we celebrate the fact that God, the gospel, is everything. God has forgiven us. Jesus has forgiven us. That is 150% true. But I also want to tell you this. This is the same God who is very, very serious about sin in your life. It's forgiven, and it costs the death and the blood of Jesus Christ to be forgiven of it. But then we ask the question, God, why aren't you blessing me? Why don't I have the things I want? God, how come you're not hearing me? God, we start crying out to God, even though we are purposefully and knowledgeably sinning, and we are not living holy lives as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we ask the question, where are you, God? Have we ever thought for a second that perhaps this verse still pertains to the people of God in the year 2022? It just looks different. Because we are forgiven because of Christ, it doesn't mean that God's going to have his ear to us when we're purposely sinning against him. Maybe I'm wrong. But I want you to hear this verse again because this verse shook me when I read it. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, this is where theology and life starts to blend a little bit. So stay with me. For those who like theology, you're going to love this. For those who don't, uh, close your eyes for five minutes and come back. So forgiveness and re- is already given. The blood of Jesus Christ does not require works for us to be forgiven. We are forgiven and given by grace. So therefore, we are seen as righteousness because of only Jesus Christ and the cross. That is very, very important to know. Otherwise, you move into a works-based faith, which says this. I have to earn God's favor. So I'm doing lots of things so that God forgives me and loves me. That's not what this is about. We're looking at the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, but now we look at it through a new lens. Because in our culture, in American culture, we have become so lackadaisical about sin that we just say, but I'm forgiven. I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm forgiven. I don't like what that Bible verse says, so I don't believe it. Or I'll take this part of the Bible, but not that part of the Bible, because this part agrees with me, but that part doesn't agree with me. And we have created our own theology in which Jesus is your homeboy. Jesus is my homie. Like, we're cool. We hang out. We walk on the beach together. Um, I sin. He's like, it's okay. I still love you. You're still good. And he's not serious about his holiness. Let me put that in contrast now with the God of holiness. God had his own son murdered to offer you that forgiveness. I think he's real, real serious about holiness and us not sinning. Because sin destroys us. It destroys God's creation. It destroys humans. 
it creates death into the world, and it kills nothing good comes from sin. So God says this, you are so forgiven because I know you're going to fall short. You could not reach me, so I've provided a way. But stop sinning. Stop doing the things that you know are not right. I kid you not, my friends, in most of our counseling sessions, I will sit down with long-term Christians who believe fully that they, their viewpoint, even though it's 100% sin, is okay because it's not that big of a deal. At Mosaic, we hold here a strong, what we call biblical worldview, which says this. We hold the Bible in the highest of regard in which we look at our world through the context of Scripture. We understand inside of that, there are things that are very clear. We understand sometimes that there's some gray areas. We understand there's things we have to wrestle with that are not inside of the Scriptures, such as, what do you do with technology, right? That's not inside the Bible. But we take the principles of the Scriptures and we apply them into everyday situations and say, our biblical worldview informs us of what is sin and not sin. And I'm willing to say to you right now, in this room, very few of you hold a true biblical worldview. Because culture has influenced us so greatly to say, but the Bible doesn't always make us feel good. There's things in there that I just want to do, or maybe that's just okay, or why do I have to have that viewpoint? Because I'm forgiven by God. And so as your, as your pastor, as your brother in the Lord, I'm saying this to you, sin kills everybody and everything. Fight with all of your heart to stop sin. Be the person who is the sin stopper, not the sin starter. Because when you look at the Bible, the biblical worldview says we are to help our brothers and sisters to help them to stop sinning so that grace can abound more in us and that we can be more of Christ to give love and in Christ into the world. Because if we are living purposely in sin, guess what we're replicating? We're replicating sin. If we live more in Christ and fall on his mercy and grace when we don't meet the mark of God's holiness, Therefore, God, his grace abounds more in us, and we replicate mercy and grace. That's your theology, doctrinal. I put them together for you, but that's your moment. So come back to me if you fell asleep. Now, having said all that, sin kills. God has a better plan than what you think is good. God's plan is better than your plan. God's ways are better than your ways. God's plans are better than your culture. God's plans are better than your needs, your wants, your desires. I just say God's plans are better, I'm going to say this clearly, than what you feel you deserve. What you feel you deserve, I deserve this, is not God. Because when you look in the context of God, what you deserve is to be eternally punished in death for the rest of your life with nothing good ever coming to you, ever. It's the beauty of God's mercy and grace that says, no, 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 you are cherished, you are loved, you are mine, you are my child. That's all God. That's not us, that's God. We don't get what we deserve, and that's mercy. That's mercy. So here we go back to our passage. Uh, Joshua, he's like, what is going on? He says, you need to find what there's sin in your camp. There's a villain. Find the villain. And when you find that villain, you've got to stop this villain from sinning. We're in 7, 13 to 15 now, back in Joshua. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. 
The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So God gives an instruction. There is sin in the camp. There's a villain among you. This is happening because there, there are things devoted to other gods and other ways. They're here in your camp and you, you don't even know about it, but it has defiled you as a group of people because you are called to be holy as I am holy. Someone broke the covenant. It wasn't that hard. Don't take stuff that I told you not to take. Really not that hard of a concept. But he does it. They take it anyways. And so when you think about this, why in the world would he do this? Why would anybody do this? Why would people take... I want to go back to the book of Genesis. In our first message, we talked about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had the exact same approach to sin. Eve looked at the tree, and she saw that the tree was good for eating. Like, oh, that's a good-looking fruit. And the, and the serpent says, well, God didn't really say you're going to die. Why don't you take a bite of it? She's like, well, I'm hungry. I want that fruit. I'm going to eat that fruit. I want it. And I'm really questioning, did God really say that? Like, is God just being overly dramatic, or is he really serious about stuff? And so Eve starts to ponder. She's like, it's not that big of a deal. She lets us have all this other fruit. Told us not to eat of this fruit. So like, she takes a bite and she gives it to her husband. And he's like, oh, this is, wow, this is really, it's probably the best fruit we ever had in our lives. And they realize, boom, they've now disobeyed God. And God is very serious about disobedience. To the point now of they realize that they're naked, which means they get full of guilt and shame. Imagine never being having known guilt or shame in your life. They're now full of guilt and shame and brokenness. The relationship and covenant between Adam and Eve and God is broken. They are now removed from God's presence. God no longer walks with them. They're kicked out of the garden. And then as we start moving along, as Pastor Nick spoke a few weeks ago, Cain now comes in, got Cain and Abel. Brothers are killing brothers. Sin is just spreading everywhere. So here we have the nation of Israel back in context. And he saw the stuff. He's like, ooh, I want some of that stuff. And so what's the big deal if I just take some? No one's ever going to know. God's not going to, it's not going to matter. You know, we're going to keep winning. Do you guys ever do this and like justify your sin pretty much every day, right? We're cool. No one's going to know. I'm not going to hurt anybody. You know, it's just a little thing. It's just me. There's a lot worse things I could be doing. So sin justification has to be happening when this, uh, this edict comes out. And so during in between, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. What's happening in this time is they did exactly that. They brought forward each tribe, and God brings this tribe, and God brings this clan, and God brings this family, and God brings this man. That puts us to verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done, and do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the, uh, in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So this man named Achan comes up and he gets, he's not saying, hey, it's me, guys. My bad, my bad. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. God goes through and says, take this one, take this one. And so each one by one comes down to Achan standing there. He's like, okay, what'd you do, bro? He's like, okay, now that you've caught me, I did it. Now that you found me, yeah, it was me. My bad. And here's what's happening. I went there, and they had this beautiful, 
robe from Babylonia. I mean, who makes robes like Babylonia? And look, man, there's gold and there's silver, and I just wanted it. I just wanted it. Like, I've done all the work. I'm out here battling with you guys. I'm out here destroying all these families. Do you know what it's like to have to go into these cities like Jericho and have to slaughter all the animals and all the people and all this stuff? It's gross, and I'm working hard, and I don't get paid much, and there's like a million reasons. I deserve this, right, God? Maybe you can relate, right? I've been going through a lot here, God. It's not a big deal. So this is what I did. Because I saw it, um, I took it, and because I'm so proud I took it, I dug a hole underneath my tent, and I hid it so no one saw it. If it wasn't a big deal, why'd you hide it, bro? If it wasn't a big deal, why are we hiding underneath tents, and why are we digging holes, and why are we pretending like we don't have it? Because he knew that he sinned against God. Notice this sin is a willing, no-full, I know what's going on, and I don't care attitude to sin. Because I just want it. It's mine. I want it now. And he's being a little brat about it. I want it. I deserve it. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a huge, huge deal. Because just like Adam and Eve and their approach, now you have Achan with the same approach. And you have to start to ask the question, is disobeying God a really big deal? If disobeying God is a really big deal, and we see this in Scripture over and over again, why do we take it so lightly? Why do we pretend like it's not that big of a deal? If sin is so huge, is it our mindset that God is simply going to forgive me? Is it the mindset that God owes me something? Is it the mindset that I just trust that God, Jesus is my homeboy, and even though I've messed up, we're still cool and we're buddies? Friend, our theology and the way we think of God has gotten really, really messed up and twisted. Because in one sense, God forgives us of everything. This beautiful grace of the gospel rests upon those who call Jesus Christ as Savior. And as you go before heaven and you see God, it's the, because of Jesus Christ that we enter into gates, not because of you. It's because of his sacrifice of saving you. But if we really believe in this, why in the world would we still be the villain in the story living in sin purposefully and doing sinful things thinking, don't worry, Jesus is just going to fix it for me. It's a mockery of the cross. When we willingly live this way, friends, we just think so flippantly it's no big deal or I'm going to religious my way out of this, but that is not true doctrine and true theology of who God is. God is holy and there's nobody like him. He is righteousness, he is perfect love, he is mercy, but he's also justice. That's the part we don't like to talk about God. He's also just. And he's just as just as he, say that twice, just as just as he was back then as he is right now in your life. He is still a holy God. So when we look at this passage, we can relate that the sin is serious, but grace abounds. Maybe part of our story gets complex because we think there's a time when sin is okay. When you know you're not supposed to do something, but because of our circumstance, it's okay. And I'm not getting into the nuances of really weird nuance and philosophy. I did philosophy in school, and we get all the philosophical. That's what I'm talking about, philosophical. Well, what if you, can you steal a loaf of bread to feed your friend? Let's just go to the real practical things of your life right now. 
Okay? Let's go to the very practical. Let's not go down a rabbit trail. Sin is never okay. Sin is not okay even if you lose your job. Sin is not okay even if you lose your friends, your home. Sin is not okay if you lost things that are very valuable to you, precious to you. Sin is never okay because sin is the opposite of the way of God. And if you are a people of God, you are part of now the people that live for God. And if you're exploring God, it's your sin that's keeping you away from him. And only Christ can fix the problem. And so sin is wasting the potential that you have to start a world on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine, friends, imagine, friends, if just people who said they were Christians, let's just pretend, we're going to play a little make-believe. You say, just the Christians of America, if the Christians of America stopped sinning and lived like God, do you think we'd be in the cesspool that we are in right now? Just America. Let's just take America. If we could, let's just say, let's slow down the sinning. Let's just say that we go from maybe 80% to 3%. Let's just say, let's just pretend, just people who call themselves Christians, if they could stop sinning, start bringing God into the world, love, mercy, justice, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all these things, these fruits of the Spirit we see, if just Christians did that, where do you think we'd be right now as a nation? Because if we're the light and the Spirit lives in us, is it potential that we are throwing away because sin is darkening our light? Sin is snuffing the light out in our lives, and as we sin and we bring death and we start being the mother and birthing more death and destruction into the world with each sin we do, that we are part of the problem when God has called his people to be a part of the solution. That we can actually help bring God's kingdom to earth by following the way of Jesus, and then a whole new world economy starts, which is driven by what God has called us to be. But I want to keep reading here, because I want to show you how serious God is about sin. Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all of Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned him, they burned him. This family was treated exactly the same way they treated Jericho. The enemy was treated this way. The outside, the way people afar from God were treated this way. And so now, this whole group of people, were they innocent bystanders? Let's think for a second. If you're married and you're in a tent and your husband's digging a hole, I don't know one wife who's going to be like, why are you digging the hole? They're, they're like, oh, he's digging. That's really normal for him, right? So this dude's digging a hole, right? There ain't no wife alive that's not going to say something. And they're digging a hole. And so they're digging. He's digging. Like, what are you doing? Okay, 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 okay. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. You got you to promise to keep this quiet. We were over there, and I just saw this robe. And I wanted to get it for you because I thought the blue matched the blue in your eyes. And we need a retirement fund. 
right? Because we're going to get to the new land, but we're not going to have much. And they had some gold and some silver. And this is just for us. It's just a little side thing. And guys, you've got to keep this quiet, right? Kids, now the kids are in on it. Kids, you guys got to keep this quiet. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Maybe one chimes up. We're telling a narrative. Maybe one chimes up. Dad, aren't we weren't, I thought we weren't supposed to take it. I know we weren't supposed to take it, but it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. But just be quiet and help me get this in this hole and let's cover it back up again and tell no one what's underneath my tent. There's no way that that dude didn't tell somebody or someone didn't know inside of his family. And so his family, had they been righteous, would have said, Dad, you're wrong. Joshua, we've broken the covenant of God. What if they would have confessed before it happened? Would it have come to this point of saying, God, forgive me. Forgive my family. Forgive my father. He saw and he thought wrong. Mercy upon us. We return these things back. We don't want them. We want to follow the way of God. Would you please forgive us? Might look a lot different than this story in which that dude didn't even say it was me when they started counting down the families because he was hoping really hard that God wouldn't pick him out, right? Maybe they won't find out it's me. To the very end, he's hiding because sin hides. So here's Achan, this villain in the camp. It seems extreme from our concepts because we're not conceptually even aligned to how serious sin is. We're not even conceptually, we're just starting to scratch the surface today about how serious sin is and how sin creates the villain. And so you have this villain in Achan and you see something that scares you. You say, wait a minute. Is God serious like that about me? But we skip over details. We skip over details that 36 Israelite soldiers lost their life because of this dude. Right? We skip that part. 36 of them, there's two to 3,000, but 36 families lost their, probably husbands, mostly men, uh, soldiers at that time, lost their family members. 36 families are in mourning because this guy stole some stuff. We skip over that. We skip over the fact that the family had to have some sort of knowledge. We skip over the fact that everybody in Israel knew not to take things. We skip over stuff to try to move forward to say, you know what, maybe it's not that big of a deal in the same way that you skip over things in your life and try to justify your sin by saying it's not that big of a deal. It is. Sin is destruction. I want to read this verse to you in 1 John. I want you to hear this verse now. As this is a heavy, ver- heavy passage, I want you to hear the light that why we worship this Jesus and why we sing these songs. Listen to this, 1 John 1, 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, him being Jesus. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word is not in us. Notice this. This isn't about the fact that there is sin. Because everybody sins. You sin, we sin, I sin. Sin is in us. But notice this verse. There's darkness and there's light. Darkness is I'm going to hide and bury all my garbage inside of a deep hole and pretend nobody knows about it. Light is, and when I come to sin, I bring my sin to the light and say, God, will you forgive me? 
Repentance is an idea of that I'm turning away from my sin. Asking God to forgive you and repeating it is called not repentance. God, please forgive me. God, please forgive me. God, please forgive me. God, please forgive me. Repentance is I turn away. Now, sin is deceptive, and we start to turn our head back, and then we say, God, I repent. I turn away. Forgive me. Repentance is a key part of our faith walk because if we are not repenting of sin, this is what happens. You become lackadaisical about sin, and you start to believe it's not that big of a deal. When you confess your sins and you sit down and think, God, how have I walked not in your light this week? Show me and expose in my heart everything that's dark. And you say this before God, and this is a natural rhythm of your spiritual life. You start to get real serious about sin because you're sick of telling God of that thing that you're stuck in. I don't want to talk about it anymore. God, I'm so sorry. Why am I still here? But hear me, God, forgive me. Sin has a new weight. Sin has a new Look in your life because you want to get rid of it. Imagine going down to a time of confession saying, God, we're cool. I just want to say thank you. I I can't think of anything, but thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the gospel. I just want to worship you today because I'm going to mess up next week and you're going to forgive me. Can you see the contrast here, friends? Our evangelical world has moved away from a place of confession, of actually recognizing the sin that we're doing, and is doing a disservice because it's not showing the holiness and righteousness of God. And so this morning, I'm going to offer you something that may be new to you or something you've seen or maybe something you haven't done for a while. I'm going to offer you a time of confession. And if this is new to you, or perhaps you come from a different faith background, you don't have to confess to me. I'm not the guy you talk to. You get to talk to the master himself. And a time of confession is a time of slowing down, simply this, God, where have I fallen short? Where have I sinned against you? And then listen. As those things come to your mind and those thoughts come, as the Spirit starts showing you things, that's where you call out to him in the mercy of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive me. I know the cross took care of everything, but I am now confessing to you. I'm saying to you, I need the gospel more today than I needed even yesterday. And every day I need it more. Hear me, God. I don't want that in my life. Give me power. Give me strength to remove it. Give me strength, Lord, when there's plunder and there's gold and there's Babylonian robes to turn my face away and say, I will not partake of that. Lord, help me when my coworker, who gives me so much attention every day and my husband doesn't talk to me, but he is so nice. Lord, help me turn away my eyes from him back to my husband, but most importantly to you. God, every time I want to lie on that report, forgive me. Lord, when I want to lie on that report, would you remind me of the truth and not fudge numbers so I look better to my boss and lie. But instead, would you give me the answer, Lord, to be truthful, even though I might lose my job? That's what confession looks like. Confession is a place of brokenness inside of your heart if I don't want sin in my life anymore. It's not a simple act of doing. It's a brokenness that comes. So I want to give you time to do that this morning. Our team's going to just play some music quietly in the background. And I'm going to give you time with your master. If you are able and would like to, you can kneel right there at your seats before God. There's nothing overly dramatic about that, but it's a posture of submission before God. Kneeling is a a posture of need. 
You can turn around in your chairs so you can lean on your chairs. You can sit right where you are. You can do whatever you want. And we're going to have a time of worship, but this sanctuary is open for you because you might just need time today. Time to process. Time to pray. Time to heal. So at this time, if you're able and willing to kneel or to come before your God, let's spend a few moments here asking God and confessing together. Let's confess. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world. Visit us at mosaicwi.com.